Well, welcome everyone to Kids A to Z with Dr. T. I am your host, Teresa Signorelli, and we are bringing you information about the five areas of human development, and we're looking at children, and those five areas include physical, intellectual, social, emotional, emotional, and moral, so parents can empower their children to thrive. And in this case, we also want related professionals um, helping children to thrive. And we have a special Brains in Toyland segment today, and we are broadcasting from the road for the first time um, with the help of Hidden Chapel Studios, when we're broadcasting from the New York Center for Child Development. And uh, this is thanks to the idea from a friend and colleague of mine, Sarita Austin, who I know from my doctoral program at the CUNY Graduate Center. And she is the director of the Department of Speech and Language Pathology here at the New York Center for Child Development. So thanking Sarita for her idea to have our panel here today, have our discussion here today. And it's also serving as a training for the teaching clinical and administrative staff um, at NYCCD. So we're going to be talking about social-emotional learning, which is the process by which children and even adults acquire knowledge and skills so that they can be truly successful in life. And we have three expert panelists in this area, and that includes an art therapist, Dr. Margaret Carla Grusso, another art therapist, Rachel Brandoff, and a music therapist, Maya Benatar. So I'm going to start off by giving you a little bit of a background about each of our speakers. First, um, Dr. Carla Caruso is an art therapist with over 20 years' experience, and she currently works in private practice with individuals with developmental, cognitive, social-emotional, physical, emotional, or behavioral concerns. She's also an adjunct faculty member of the Graduate Creative Arts Therapy Program at Hofstra University, and she's also actively engaged in art therapy advocacy at the state and at the national levels. So Dr. Carla Crusoe also provides trainings and presentations internationally. So um, that's Dr. Carla Crusoe. And then we have Rachel Brandoff, um, who is another art therapist, and she is a clinical practitioner here in New York, and she works with children, families, and adults. She is the ethics chair on the board, um, the ethics chair on the board of the New York Art Therapy Association, and she's the executive coordinator of Expressive Therapies Summit. She's also an adjunct um, professor in the art therapy program at Marymount Manhattan College. So another disclosure there, Marymount Manhattan is where I teach, and that's how I found Rachel, who introduced us to um, to Margaret. And um, then we have Maya Rudolph. I'm sorry. Maya Benatar, <laughs> Maya Benatar, who is a music therapist. I found Maya actually on the internet, and Maya has been a guest on my show before. She was actually with me doing this panel a few weeks ago, and I invited her back because she has such wonderful information. But Maya is a board-certified and licensed music therapist um, with a New York City-based practice where she works with children of all angel ages, addressing their needs and also helping their families and she uses a holistic, child-centered approach and provides opportunities for really authentic uh, connection, that is, and creative self-expression, and she uses a play-based approach um, and a developmental um, approach creating her therapeutic goals. So that is our esteemed panel. So welcome, panelists. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So let's get in, I guess, to the meat of our talk about what is social-emotional learning. So... Uh, why don't we start there? I don't know which of you is interested in leading off. Or 
Margaret? Well, sure. <laughs> um, uh, so social-emotional learning is really uh, about those skills that we integrate without, with, throughout our lives, um, and they start in childhood. Things like understanding how our emotions are working within us, how we feel about things, the way that we react with others, our ability to make relationships with people, our ability to problem solve, and um, overall understanding how we function in the world. Uh, in order to be successful at any endeavor in life, we need to be able to develop these types of skills in every individual. Right. Maya or Rachel, do you have something you'd like to add there? Social and emotional learning is also the the capacity to feel and show empathy for others, to establish and maintain positive relationships, both with peers and with adults, and to make responsible decisions at home, at school, and in the community. Right. Um, Rachel, did you have something? Um, just uh, social and emotional learning um, spans all the different disciplines in life. So mm -hmm. this is something that's applicable um, both in and out of a school setting. Right, right. And I think one of the other important things to think about is what social emotional learning helps you is build good relationships. And we all know that that is where learning takes place. It's through those um, supportive relationships mm -hmm. where children can thrive and even adults too. So I think that's a big part of what we should always keep in mind. It's building that rapport, building those relationships so children can learn successfully. Mm -hmm. Now there are five core competencies that they talk about regarding social-emotional learning and that is self-awareness, they talk about self-management, social awareness, relationship skills, and responsible decision-making. And again, you probably heard a number of these terms um, in the in responses from our panelists just now, but we're going to go into them a little bit more in detail. So let's start off talking about um, self-awareness. What exactly is that? We probably all have an idea, but um, sure. let's make it concrete. Sure. Uh, self-awareness is really the ability to understand your own emotions and to be able to um, know how your emotions affect your thoughts. In addition to that, it's the way that you begin to influence and regulate your behavior. Um, children who are self-aware have a sense of confidence, um, and that is a, there's a continuum of self-awareness. I mean, we're, we're all growing and learning all the time, so what we need to do is provide children with the opportunity to begin to explore, um, have opportunities to express themselves, and to uh, be able to experience different feelings, different emotions, different situations, so that they can learn how to navigate those successfully. Okay, do you guys have anything to add? But um, yeah, I think that's a really important key skill. That's mm -hmm. why it's one of those five core competencies. You need to be able to identify your emotions, realizing you're feeling something, give it a name so that you can respond. Sure. Um, and that I think kind of leads into the next core competency, which is self-management. Maya or uh, Rachel, would like would one of you like to take that? Um, I agree that it leads right into it from self-awareness um, by being self by having a better understanding of one's own emotions uh, and the behaviors that result. Um, a person can be more confident of their ability to be in control of themselves. It's hard to regulate your uh, behaviors if you don't even understand the thoughts or feelings that are underlying them. Um, so self-management includes um, being able to tolerate stress and mm -hmm. frustrations and understanding how to 
um, manage them, even in situations where we might feel really out of control. Um, we still have to have an understanding of how we feel about a situation um, and what is sort of the appropriate social action or behavior to exhibit. Right. Okay. So that's self-awareness where we're identifying and recognizing what our emotions are and then self-management where we're able to regulate and control those emotions. And then another key competency is social awareness. Maya, do you want to talk about that one a little? Sure. Social awareness is the ability to take in the perspective of others around you and to empathize with them, especially with others around you who are from diverse backgrounds and cultures, to understand the social and ethical norms for behavior, what's acceptable, when is it acceptable, where is it acceptable, and to recognize supports and resources that are around you. Okay. So... um, then the next core competency are relationship skills, which sounds a little bit like social awareness, but um, it's different. So maybe, Margaret, do you want to jump in for that one? Sure. It's a little different because relationship skills require you to have those interpersonal skills to be able to cultivate a connection with someone else, to be able to maintain a healthy relationship um, and navigate those gives and takes, um, the social pressures that might come with Um, interacting with others in your age group as a child or um, negotiating difficulties, conflicts, you know, uh, if you're the, you know, playing a game and someone's achieving more than you, how do you deal with that? Those types of things are all um, encompassing in in relationship building. So I guess in terms of social awareness, you might see that Johnny's in a bad mood, maybe because he hasn't had snack yet. So you Mm -hmm. recognized... um, that perspective of his, and then your good relationship skills, that other core competency, competent, oh goodness, competent, competency, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm a speech-language pathologist, you're going <laughs> to laugh, I'm going to have a lot of trouble saying words a lot of times. <laughs> um, those relationship skills will help you navigate through an interaction with him if he's in a sour mood for sure. whatever reason. Sure. Okay. And then that fifth core competency Um, of social-emotional learning is responsible decision-making. And that actually sounds pretty important because it's going to influence everything, I would think. Which of you would like to take that? Uh, Rachel? Okay, go ahead. Um, uh, Decision-making is happening uh, all the time, but the idea of responsible decision-making, being able to evaluate um, uh, options of behaviors, being able to foresee possible outcomes, being able to um, negotiate which decision um, uh, comes with certain benefits and might come with certain consequences. Um, what decision is appropriate in light of safety, in light of um, uh, considering the well-being of others in addition to yourself. Um, so helping to foster responsible decision-making is essential for people to learn to have the opportunity to practice this um, and to learn, up, learn to make responsible decisions as they grow up. Okay, so again, those five core competencies, self-awareness, being able to recognize uh, your own emotions, give a name to it, and then management, regulating those emotions, being able to tolerate stress and unknown situations, and then that social awareness where you can have or understand someone else's perspective, 
then build upon relationship skills, that fourth core competency, so you can navigate through interactions with other people successfully, and then responsible decision-making, so you can make smart choices and, um, uh, and be successful. So actually, we're going to take a little break. I'm going to ask Heidi to come on up. Uh, this is a new segment or a new aspect of our show. We're going to have a commercial. And so since the New York Center for Child Development um, has been so gracious to us, we are asking one of their speech-language pathologists, Heidi Wexler, to give us a little bit of information about uh, the program. Go ahead. <laughs> New York Center for the Developing Child provides early intervention, preschool special education, and mental health services for infants, toddlers, and children ages 0 to 8 in their homes, in the center's schools, and across community preschools, daycare centers, pediatric clinics, hospitals, and other partner sites in New York City. Since 1995, the center has identified, evaluated, and served more than 30,000 children with a wide range of developmental and social-emotional challenges, their families, and the institutions that serve them. For parents who are concerned about their child's early development, New York Center provides high-quality consultation and evaluations to help determine their child's needs. To explore how the New York Center can identify and or help meet the unique needs of your child and family, visit us at www.nyccd.org or call 212-752-7575, extension 320. New York Center for the Developing Child, committed to excellence in the education and treatment of young children and their families. Okay, thank you, Heidi. And I guess I should have another disclosure. I contracted for this agency probably 10 to 15 years ago as a speech pathologist doing um, intake evaluations. So um, it's so nice to come back home, so to speak, even though I was only here for a short while and part-time. But it really is a wonderful organization, and it's been so nice to see it grow and providing more and more services. Um, and this is just another one of their services where we're able to help train the staff and broadcast this radio show so we can train even more people and, and get the word out. So, okay, back, I guess, to our talk and our next question and talking about um, the benefits of social-emotional learning or really what are the outcomes of social-emotional learning um, for children and people in general, but let's talk about that. Margaret, maybe you want to start there? The most basic outcomes are that um, an individual will be able to navigate through their life in a more productive manner, to be able to have satisfying relationships, and be able to be successful at different endeavors, whether it's schoolwork or uh, playing or uh, finding a job as you get older. It, having these skills really allows a person to be able to achieve as high potential as they possibly can. Um, it also, within school systems, will help children to feel less pressured um, under certain academic situations, to be able to um, resist those temptations that happen in school as far as um, risky behaviors and things like that, to be able to judge and make those good decisions. Yeah, Maya or Rachel, do you have comments to add? Yeah, so I think the the big outcomes that they talk about having good social-emotional learning skills is better academic performance across a lifetime, mm -hmm. 
in improved attitudes and behaviors is something, is a big outcome that comes from that. And then fewer negative behaviors, which is tied to that as well, because children and people in general can navigate through difficult or challenging or stressful situations more effectively and more efficiently. And then um, reducing emotional distress, too, um, is a big part of having good social-emotional skills. And that, of course, is going to have an impact on your physical um, uh, well-being, too. So there's a lot of really big core outcomes of good social-emotional learning that we can um, see. And I think that's why it's so important and why when I was talking with Sarita Austin about what we can do for this show, social-emotional learning to me, is relatively new, and the more I learned about it, the more I saw, wow, this is really so critical. Because as a speech pathologist, um, I'm helping people communicate who can't communicate so well, who aren't learning as well as they should. But if if their social-emotional well-being isn't set, anything I do with them really won't take effect. So I need them to be able to regulate their emotions um, so that they can focus on the information I'm giving them. And that's going to happen with teachers in a classroom, with OTs, occupational therapists, and physical therapists, and um, in the playground, et cetera, that you really need to be in a good situation from a social-emotional perspective to be a good learner and to be a good participant in the classroom and eventually through college and when you get into the workforce to be a good colleague Mm -hmm. and a good, positive, effective contributor to society. So that's why I thought, as Sarita and I were talking, like this is a really nice topic that Mm -hmm. um, we should address because in order for us also to instill these great skills in our kids, I think it's important for us to, to... work on our own social-emotional learning skills, being aware of how am I feeling right now uh, how, and how can I better navigate through the situation. Um, so having said that, let's talk about some more fun things and maybe you all as practitioners um, talk about, um, let's see, maybe some activities that are really critical for developing social-emotional skills mm-hmm. that can be a part of a social-emotional learning curriculum. Um, so what will be useful for children depends widely on their, their age and their cognitive ability and verbal ability, but overall some things that I found really useful in my practice is introducing mindfulness with kids. I'm going to jump in for one second. Mm-hmm. So this is Maya Benatar. She is the music therapist. So, yeah, okay, go ahead. So the building block of social and emotional skills really is the self-awareness. And if you're not aware of what you're feeling, your emotions, thoughts, and behaviors, all the other pieces really can't fall into place effectively. You know, there's no way to make responsible decisions or to interact with peers and parents and teachers in a productive manner if you don't, you can't identify, oh, I'm feeling mad, I'm feeling sad, I'm really, really angry right now. Because only when you identify those things can you then think of how you can manage them and how you can deal with them. So I often incorporate a lot of mindfulness into my work with children, and it will look very different depending on the kid and depending on the goals, but something as simple as doing really deep breathing with little, little kids will, you know, will breathe like the wind. Or, you know, I had a session um, Monday night at the beginning of the snowstorm, and the wind was starting to pick up, and he said, I don't want to breathe, I don't want to breathe, and he was very, very hyper. I said, well, can we breathe like the wind? And we went to the window, and the snow was going back and forth. He goes, oh, yeah, we can do that. And so we 
tried to literally make the sound of the wind with our mouths. And in order to have enough breath coming out that you make a sound, there has to be enough breath coming in. And it has to be continuous. And all of a sudden, he was regulated again. And so that's something that this particular child will use on a regular basis and something that is written into his IEP goals that his mother uses with him in the car, at home, at school. So really simple things like helping kids notice their breath and modeling that for them. Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't do any good if you say, breathe, breathe now, and you're like, you know, and you're tense, and you're tense <laughs> which we might, may often feel when we're working with kids who are, who are not regulated. So the important part with mindfulness is modeling it for them because they really, and even with children who may be nonverbal, they're picking up a lot from our own energy and from our own breath or lack of breath. Modeling is so important. And what we're um, asking them to do, if we can model it, and I'm sure educators out there see that happening, um, how effective that can be. But before, actually, before we go and talking about more about some other anecdotes you all may have, the term regula regulation or being able to regulate oneself has come up, and I'm not sure everyone is going to be clear on what that is. What do we mean when we say that, that uh, we want them to regulate their emotions? So regulation means just being able to come back to an equilibrium. So if you're really, really excited, being able to just come back down. If you're feeling kind of low or blue, being able to just come up just a little bit mm -hmm. so things feel even and manageable. Okay. It doesn't mean that we're always sunny and perfect and smiling, but that we can come from the extremes back to some kind of center. Okay, great. If I Margaret? could just add, sure. I think Maya brought up an excellent point um, in modeling and working with children and showing them doing the same motions that you want children to do because in order to learn how to regulate the children need those skills. They need the strategies that uh, they don't necessarily innately know or realize will work for them. So it's really important for um, adults and uh, other people that are in their in their lives to model those types of behaviors that you might want. Maybe it's breathing. Maybe it's writing. Maybe it's drawing. Maybe it's taking a walk. Whatever it is, mm -hmm. we need to be able to give children those strategies and opportunities so that they can become self-regulators. Right. And it occurs to me that we've been talking about these art therapists and music therapists, mm -hmm. but we haven't really defined what that is either. So I'm going to hold off on this question too, and maybe since Maya just answered and gave us an example, Maya, why don't you talk a little bit about what music therapy is, and then we'll go to the art therapist. Mm -hmm. Sure. So music therapy, if I can sum it up in a sentence, is the clinical use of music-based interventions to address cognitive, social, emotional physical, and spiritual goals. Music therapists work with a wide range of clients, ranging from um, babies who are born very early in the NICU to people who are receiving hospice services mm -hmm. at the end of their lives and everyone in between. Yeah. Okay, great. So um, before we jump into some examples of what the art therapists have done, maybe Rachel, you can tell us what is art therapy? Uh, art therapy is the clinical use of art in psychotherapy to address um, physical, emotional, societal, socio, uh, uh, social um, issues um, and uh, with a goal of helping to foster well-being and greater self-awareness in the client. Okay. Sounds good. So, Margaret, did you have anything to add? or well, just, just to make people aware that um, both music therapy and art therapy are part of a... Um, 
larger group of professions that are called creative arts professions, which include maybe dance therapy, mm-hmm. um, drama therapy, et cetera. Um, and all of the, my feeling of the importance of all of them is that they tap into um, the creative process and another avenue of expression, not verbal expression alone, but using other modalities to help people learn how to express. And um, that is part of the very unique ability that uh, creative arts therapists have, um, and especially why um, the practice is so adaptable to a variety of different people and populations. Okay, and so, oh, Rachel, did you? Uh, I just want to add in also one of the common misconceptions that comes up in the creative arts therapy is that um, a client has to have some um, pre-existing skill or Mm. talent in art or music or dance or drama, and that's not at all true. Um, The very uh, fact that we all have some level of creativity within us that can be tapped into and employed in the process of creative therapies um, uh, makes it so that you don't have to have any skill, ability, or prior experience in the arts to uh, take advantage of art therapy. And benefit from it, and truly benefit yeah. from it, yeah. It's um, art and music, or art in all its forms, is really wonderful. We see from a therapeutic standpoint in terms of emotional health, what uh, that art therapists and music therapists are engaging in, but I'm sure any educator and any speech pathologist, OT, and who knows, maybe PT, we use art all the time to, in education to teach uh, concepts um, and build skills. So um, it really has such a wide range of applications, and I think, Rachel, that's a wonderful point. You don't need to have great music skills, great art skills, that you can really benefit just by engaging in the act of being creative. Mm-hmm. So back to that original question about examples from your practice um, where you've used some kind of art or music-based activity to, um, to work with someone on their social-emotional development. So, um, Margaret, you want to uh, jump in? Sure. So uh, part of my practice, I, uh, I'm a private practitioner that also works with some groups in after-school programs and other types of venues. And w- what I find working with young children is that... Um, the way I work, I work in groups, so I try to offer them opportunities not only to work on their own, there's a balance where they can express themselves individually, but I also offer um, opportunities for them to engage in group activities, so to, to practice those negotiating skills, to um, be able to have some of that uh, natural pressure that might happen when you're in a group and be able to practice those self-regulation skills and to uh, gain confidence in their ability because all of these things that we're talking about do not happen overnight and they cannot be you know, one lesson in isolation. They have to be embedded in a, in a person's life and their daily activities and the more opportunities that children have to practice the skills and be exposed to different situations where it's a safe environment where they can feel like they can uh, attempt um, to practice and to try new things, um, that's going to be helpful for them. Okay, great. And so you know what actually what I'd like to do at this point too is take another small commercial break. <laughs> this podcast is being brought to you by Audio for Experts a service from Hidden Chapel Studios. Expert guidance to develop your audio projects such as podcasts, audiobooks, and live recordings. Create, record, inspire. 
For a free consultation, go to HiddenChapelStudios.com. Okay, so it's getting really exciting at Kids A to Z. Um, that's our first real professional uh, <laughs> commercial like that. Um, and Hidden Chapel Studios has been so wonderful helping us set up today and make this possible. So big shout out and, and thanks to them. So that said, let's get back, I guess, to our content. And Rachel, can you talk to us maybe a little bit about, um, give an example of something you've done with a patient or client in terms of developing their social-emotional development? Absolutely. Uh, One of the things I like to use a lot in my work is games. Um, People who uh, work with young children are often familiar with the idea that um, games can promote learning. And um, through both uh, experience and trial and error within the safety of play. Um, And there's several different games that I use um, in a therapeutic context to promote um, social-emotional learning. One of them is a um, spin on the traditional memory game Mm -hmm. um, where uh, the player overturns cards and is looking for a match, basically looking for two cards that have an identical picture on them. Um, However, in this uh, therapeutic variation of that game, um, the the person in therapy, the child in this case, um, helps to create the game itself. Um, And the way that I do this is I use uh, a picture that uh, illustrates some sort of dilemma or problem. And um, without any text or without any explanation, the client identifies what the problem is. So, for example, looking at um, the person or people in the pictures, their facial expressions, their stance or posture, um, movement lines, or uh, whatever other context clues might be going on in the environment to give them a picture of what's happening here in this situation. Um, So the first step in this game is building the actual game where the client sees the problem card and then they get the opportunity to create the solution card. Um, One of the interesting things about this game is that um, it frequently fosters the understanding that there's not only one solution to any given problem and that any problem situation might even be looked at in a different way, many different ways. Um, this game in a group context, for example, uh, one single card can produce as many different varied solutions as there are people in the group. Mm-hmm. Um, and then using the games in, uh, using the cards in an actual memory game where instead of matching two like cards, you're matching the problem card with the solution is a way of helping to reinforce Um, this idea of understanding um, decision-making skills, how to um, apply them to conflict resolution situations. Um, Another variation on this same theme is is using a bingo card whereby the bingo squares each have um, a different uh, identifier, that could be something relevant to anybody's life. For example, uh, on Sunday, or um, when I'm happy, or when I'm sad, or sort of uh, broad generic identifiers, and then the bingo card cover pieces um, convey a different sort of emotion or situation or circumstance. And the person gets to match 
the feeling with the situation. And um, one of the interesting things about playing with multiple um, players with this sort of situation is that you can see that not everybody feels the same way. Um, and, a, and one situation that might make one person feel one way might make another person feel another way. So it really um, exemplifies for the clients the variations in experience. Right. So you do this in a therapeutic setting, in a clinic room. Um, part of what we want to do here is talk about how we can help empower parents as partners in this journey of helping children build their social-emotional learning skills. Can you talk a little bit about how you interface with parents and get them to carry over because that's so important, being able to exercise these skills in a real-world situation. It's one thing in a therapy room or a small classroom where we're there to help um, children through a process, but what about when they're in the real world? What can we do for parents? I can Margaret? speak about yeah. some of what I've done in the past is actually offer um, per parent groups, um, it, parent training, so to speak, um, and uh, specifically helps because sometimes, you know, parents don't even understand really in, in the context that I work in um, what art therapy is and how it's different than perhaps some other type of um, artistic endeavor their child might do. And so by bringing parents in and communicating with them and giving them some of the strategies, explaining the creative process and how art therapy can assist with this social-emotional learning, um, then I often, what I find to be most powerful is allow the parents to have an experience um, that would be, you know, appropriate to their level, but um, something that would be sort of similar to what their children may experience so that uh, because it's so nonverbal and because the creative process is in play, um, the parents really seem to get the idea of how important it is to allow children to have these opportunities to explore um, when they experience it themselves. So I found that to be very effective. Um, and then we can also give them some ideas on ways to allow children to engage in play, alternates, um, alternate activities that they can do at home or encourage their children to participate in at home. Okay. Maya, is there something you can add from a music therapy perspective? There's a lot of overlap. I think I also provide um, parent workshops and trainings. And with a lot of my individual clients, I'm often speaking to the parents really specifically about what they notice about their children's behaviors or emotions and what they notice about their own reactions to them. So, so often it becomes, well, he did this and he did that and I don't know what to do. And, you know, it becomes kind of like, what Band-Aid can I put on this to fix it? Just fix it. And it, for parents, it's a process of empowering them. You know, I spend 45 minutes a week with your with your son and you spend a lot more than that. So what can you do? What do you notice helps them? What do you notice really doesn't help? I will give really simple uh, tools and tips. I blog frequently about different ways that parents can use music specifically. So to notice what kind of music their children respond to and when. To notice when too much sound might be affecting them negatively. To notice when there's sound in the home or in the car as opposed to when there isn't. So often... Parents are used to, you know, the TV might be on and someone might be on the phone and then there might be music playing in the next room and then they wonder why their child is, like, bouncing off the couch cushions. 
Um, and it's just we so often are not aware of how sound affects us, not just music itself, but sound in all of its varieties. So I really try to help parents tune into that and to also tune into their own reactions to when there's too much sound or when there's too much music even, because there can be too much music, which is weird for a music therapist to say, but there can be too much music if it's not serving the needs and the goals mm-hmm. of, the, of that particular child, and it really is an individual thing. So I try to empower parents that there isn't one blanket you know, answer for what kind of music put, helps them go to sleep, because I've had kids who fall asleep to really like heavy rock and roll kind of stuff, and kids who love you know, Bach cello suites and everything in between. So it really, I think, with parents is a process of empowering them to look in, inside for answers. And how, how important is it having parents in that process and having them as partners? And is, um, what is your personal experience? Is there a literature on this? Or what, what, what do we know about parents engaging in helping the social-emotional development of their children? It's essential. (laughs) It's it's absolutely essential. Um, I think that uh, uh, parents who are more skilled in navigating their own emotional experience and who are more developed in their own social-emotional learning are better positioned to help foster that growth in their children. Um, I uh, ran for years of a program called Parents and Children Together with Art um, through Free Arts NYC, and the approach from that program has informed in my own practice how I work with families. Um, And what that program does is it promotes through a structured eight-week curriculum uh, the process of families learning to negotiate and work better together as a team, as a unit, which calls into question their ability, both the parents' ability as well as the children's ability, to um, collaborate, to communicate, to um, negotiate, um, to compromise, um, and to understand uh, their role in the team as well as others' roles in the team, um, and that everybody makes unique contributions. One of the nice things I think about using art with families is that um, there are so many uh, situations in life where the parent is the expert and the child is the learner or the one who is told. And oftentimes parents don't really feel like experts in art. And that can be a nice way for them to show their own vulnerability and their own need to learn and grow and try new things and model those sort of behaviors for their children that you don't always know what's going to happen, but within a safe context, it's okay to try and it's okay to learn and it's okay to take some healthy risks. Um, I also want to say that uh, in child development, we talk a lot about how um, children learn language through their parents modeling it, and uh, parents of very young children are encouraged to sort of narrate their experience. Oh, we're going to the supermarket, and now we're picking out some tomatoes. And and I think that um, that can be just as essential in terms of navigating their emotional experience, Mm -hmm. that... um, It's not always so essential for parents to have all the answers, but be willing to talk about what they're feeling, even saying, I'm really frustrated right now, or I don't know how to deal with this situation. Mm -hmm. Um, 
instead of uh, keeping that inside, can sort of help promote the children's uh, having uh, language and, and terms. Do do adults and even professionals who aren't in the arena of social-emotional development and um, and learning, do you find that related people and professionals have the vocabulary? Can they, ident- do, can they identify? I'm feeling frustrated. I'm irritated. Um, I love you, but I'm angry with you right now. Like, do we have the vocabulary to name it and be aware? Do you find that um, from people outside of the mental health field? What I find interesting is that um, you're touching, for me, touching on a point that um, people tend to think or society tends to think that these things will just come naturally and we haven't really paid attention into how to foster um, language around feelings or how to be comfortable expressing our feelings. And depending on, you know, your background too, there are certain norms in different cultures about expressing yourself. Um, in that way emotionally. So it's difficult for a lot of parents to really get to that place. And there are people, it's a continuum. Again, there are people that don't, adults that don't really have that language yet or um, aren't comfortable sharing that um, openly. So it's something that I think um, I'm happy to talk about because what we really need to do is understand that this is not an area that just happens spontaneously, that we do need to pay attention to it and um, really foster that kind of comfortable um, feeling with our children in, in being, it, it's okay to feel different things. Uh, you don't always have to be, you know, fine and happy, and there are things that happen in life, and we have to know how to negotiate that. So yeah. I do think parents have difficulty with that at times. Yeah, it's it's something I've kind of experienced mm-hmm. as a related professional, um, and I want to talk about more on how we can help parents and educators develop their own social-emotional learning skills so we can foster that in our kids, but we're going to go to another commercial break. (laughs) And we have Heidi Wexler again from NYCCD. New York Center for the Developing Child is pleased to announce the availability of private services to meet the unique needs of young children and their families. These services include educational support, applied behavior analysis, DIR floor time, family coaching, workshops and trainings, care navigation, and clinical consultations. For more information about our agencies and services, see www.nyccd.org or contact Cheryl Gelber, Private Services Intake Coordinator, at 212-752-7575, extension 376. New York Center for the Developing Child committed to excellence in the education and treatment of young children and their families. Okay, great. Thanks so much. Okay, so back to our conversation. Um, As I was saying, I have experienced that people don't always know how how that social, um, social emotional awareness, being able to identify the feeling that they have, or if they do, they don't they can't put a name to it, so they don't know what to do with it, or they feel that they're supposed to act in a certain way and not have the feeling they're feeling. So um, I'd like to continue with that conversation. Then how do, we, how do we rectify that? How do we make sure that adults who don't have the skills we'd like them to have build those skills? Are there programs? Do they reach out to professionals like you? Um, where could we start with those? I tossed a couple of questions at you. <laughs> but I have go ahead, two Rachel. suggestions. Um, 
One is I think that we need to sort of socially reprogram um, this idea that disclosure of emotion is a weakness. I think that oftentimes um, people equate feeling frustrated, feeling um, at your wit's end, at the end of your rope with some sort of weakness when um, in actuality these are very common feelings that we all experience at some time or another and there can be great strengths in being able to just name it and state it and to better communicate to others, this is where I'm at, this is what's going on for me right now. Um, and I think that being able to see that disclosure as a strength that we can help identify what we're feeling, help communicate it to others, and then begin on the, the path of how do we want to uh, behave as a result of how we're feeling. Um, and the other thing that I think is uh, really, really important that parents can learn, um, and educators as well, is um, the idea that it's okay to revisit situations. Um, I have a, um, an example from my practice. A mother of a young child uh, came in and she was very frustrated at, at herself. It was a busy, chaotic morning and she had to get the kids dressed and out and fed and uh, they're in the car on the way to school and the young daughter spills her milk all over herself and so then they were already running late and had to turn around and go back home and change the clothes. And Mom was really frustrated and what she did was she yelled and screamed in the car and she said she saw the look on her daughter's face and she thought, my daughter is scared of me. And she was so ashamed of herself for having yelled at this young child over spilled milk that it was no big deal. And in hindsight, she could see that this was such a, a small, minor thing. But in the moment, she had blown it up into this huge, major thing. And she worried about what was her daughter taking away from this encounter, that she had to be perfect and never spill her milk, and she yelled at her daughter. And we talked about um, the idea of being able to revisit a situation. There's very few circumstances where the final word is actually the final word. Mm -hmm. And what would happen if she went back to her daughter and said, you know, mommy was really upset and didn't necessarily handle it in the most appropriate way. And while, yes, she was upset about the spilled milk, um, revisiting that in incident to sort of put it in a greater perspective of how upsetting of a situation was that and what kind of um, upset feelings or upset behaviors were warranted by that mm -hmm. and how do we excuse and overcome those sort of mistakes that you know spilling milk and making a mess can be a real annoyance and frustration and yet at the same time it's a very um, small-scale catastrophe in life um, and that by revisiting this situation with her daughter and having the opportunity to talk it out and discuss it again um, she could model that sometimes mm -hmm. our first uh, impressions our first behaviors our first responses aren't always the most helpful or useful in a situation. Right, especially because if we are emotional in the moment, we might not always be making the best decisions or thinking rationally or thinking out consequences of what we're saying. And when we're calm and, I guess, regulated again ourselves, that we can 
um, think more clearly and come up with a better way to respond. And that that's where the revisiting, which I think is a beautiful idea, is really important. And it can be used really in any situation, in uh, the home with the parent and child, in the classroom, uh, between a teacher and a student, or even in a boardroom between colleagues, I would imagine, anywhere that that is a useful strategy. Absolutely. I think it's a particularly important strategy when you find that people are stumbling over um, regrets frequently. The idea of being able to uh, go back to somebody and say, you know what, I thought a little bit more about that situation and I'd like to discuss it again. Okay. So, um, Maya or Margaret, what about that same general question? How do we build these skills, social-emotional learning um, skills, social-emotional development in adults, parents, and or um, other caregivers like educators so that we can really empower kids? <laughs> I think so often it goes back to the to the first, uh, the core competency, which is the self-awareness, mm-hmm. that societally we, a lot of us just spend our time rushing, 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 doing, 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 and the ability to cultivate what I like to call the pause button. Mm-hmm. So to really, you know, you can't, as I believe I said before, you can't, have successful relationships and negotiate social situations if you're not aware of what you're feeling. So oftentimes with adults, it's a process of, are you taking care of yourself? You know, it, Self-care is a huge buzzword right now, but I think there's a reason for that yeah. because there's a huge need for it. Yeah. So you know, it's really hard to help to model for your children or model for your students or your clients if the process isn't also happening internally. So doing whatever helps you, and this is such an individual thing, whatever helps you cultivate the ability to pause. Because when we pause, we notice, like Rachel said, oh, that reaction wasn't great. Um, Oh, I want to go back and and address that. Or, oh, now I'm really, 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 really mad. But if we never pause, the ability to recognize kind of travels along without us, so to speak. Right. So that's another great strategy. So the first is to revisit or maybe pause so you can see, gosh, do I need to revisit? Um, both great. And Margaret, what can what can you add? Well, I, I think that both Rachel and Maya brought up really essential points. And um, it, it's difficult, I think, for a parent on their own to maybe, you know, um, tackle this situation. So I do think reaching out to those resources, whether it's, you know, a training or a parent group or something like this online that's available, um, but I think that parents also need to think about what what are their goals, what goals do they have for their children, and wh- how are they willing to help in that in that process? Because um, that's once you break the ice, once you start um, these kinds of skills that Maya and Ra- and uh, Rachel have shared are essential to that modeling experience. You're giving your children such a gift and a powerful example that, you know, nobody's perfect, that everybody has these feelings, and this is what happens. Even grown-ups have difficulties, so this is how we can navigate them, you know, and it normalizes uh, all those things that children are feeling and don't know what to do with. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really good. So in terms of resources that either a school or a parent themselves, um, parents themselves can go to, is there, is there an national organization? Is there a guru who's written a great book for parents? <laughs> um, across your professional lives, have you seen things that would be great training resources mm-hmm. so we can enhance 
social, emotional learning and development in adults so we can best empower our kids. Sure. I honestly don't know of any national organization, but what I've noticed is um, that if you look into your communities, that many, many communities do have um, very low cost or, or free opportunities to be able to um, engage in some of these kinds of informational sessions. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's the first step, you know, putting yourself out there to kind of think and reflect and learn as much as you can. Uh, and also, by doing that, you're in a room with other people and uh, those people are having similar feelings, experiences, so it starts helping you network and gain those relationships that can support your own growth. Okay. Maya, did you have something to add? Sure. There, there are quite a few resources online. So there's a National Center for Infants, Toddlers, and Families, and that's 0to3.org, <laughs> yeah. which is a really great resource. Also, PBS has a lot of resources for parents on their website as well as parenttoolkit.com. So a lot of these have really clear um, PDFs and things that you can download that divide social and emotional skills by age and then also how to address them within certain domains, so within a classroom as opposed to at home, so across different areas. So those are things that parents can do with the kids, but is on those websites, is there information for, say, me as an adult, if I realize, you know what, I don't identify my emotions or regulate them so well, what could I do? Okay, so there are, there's other resources that are specifically just for adults, mm -hmm. whether or not they work with children, mm -hmm. things like mindful.org, um, which is a great resource for some sort of, some mindfulness meditations okay. and things like that, is a good place to start. Okay. And sometimes just Googling mindfulness. Um, okay. Is is also good. There's a lot of apps that also, <laughs> of course, talk about. There's an there's app, an app for, for that. Yeah. <laughs> Rachel, did you have anything uh, to add to that? Um, I think uh, one of the most effective tools for adults to um, better their social emotional learning and awareness is uh, personal therapy. And I it would certainly I would recommend say, our I was therapy or music for, therapy. It was the elephant in the room kind of thing. It's like good old-fashioned psychotherapy. Um, um, it, it can be a great way for yeah. people to better understand and better get in touch yeah. with themselves, especially um, if they have a need to model that for children or yeah. foster that uh, yeah. it's, in children. Uh, the other day on the news they were talking about the First Lady of New York City who I believe her initiative is really focusing on mental health. And I think that's what this is really all about, and um, our talk on social-emotional learning and development. Um, I think mental health is probably the most underappreciated and under-focused area um, in human development, and I think we're seeing the consequences of it, the negative consequences of it. Our physical bodies, our relationships with other people, everything becomes impacted, society on a global level. So that's why I also thought this was such a great topic to focus on, um, and the First Lady is, is, uh, of New York City, at least, is looking at that. And so I'm encouraged for our city. We're here in New York, uh, and I'm hoping that that really takes off and we can really do wonderful things as a city with that. So on that note, we're going to have another commercial break. You're a service professional. Maybe you're a doctor, therapist, or clinician. Maybe you give advice and guidance. Your clients rely on you. They value your opinion. When they visit with you, they feel more confident because you're experienced, thoughtful, and explain in detail their options. Now your clients can take you home and enjoy the comfort of your voice and the magic of your ideas anywhere. 
Welcome to Audio for Experts, your partner in bringing your unique expertise to the marketplace. All right, so we are back. Um, I have two more questions that I'd like the panel to address before we go today. And one, the first one is, what do you wish people knew that they don't? And the other one will be your favorite piece of advice. So let's first address, what do you wish that people knew more about social-emotional learning or social-emotional development? So why don't we go down the row? We'll start with Rachel and go down. Um, I I wish more people um, had an understanding that it's okay to play and that it's okay to to have fun. Um, I think a lot of times um, parents and educators and people that work with young children think that it's okay for the child to have fun, but we have to be serious professionals here. And a lot of learning can take place in a fun atmosphere Mm. um, when the defenses are lowered and there's an openness to sort of the possibilities of what might emerge. Um, And that more often than not, if the adult is having fun, then the child will be too. And I think that that's a really great scenario to foster social emotional learning. Yeah, Great. All right. Thank you, Rachel. So, Maya. I think that it's important to, to remember that there is no one way to foster social emotional learning, and there's certainly no one right way. And it's something that can be really influenced by the child that you're working with or your own child and their own likes and dislikes and needs, and to allow for your own creativity and flexibility to come into it. There's no one way to to teach them, you know, how relationships work. And you can really incorporate a lot of what you might already do with a child, whether that's a favorite story, a favorite book, a favorite song. It's really wide open, so it's not, you know, unlike math where one plus one always equals two, we hope, um, there's there's room for variation, and that's and that's kind of fits in with with what this is. It's a wide open playing field. Okay, great. And Margaret, what, what do you wish people knew? I really wish people would recognize that this is not a, a specific skill like math or that can be taught in a specific subject at, at a time that is left up to someone else, whether that be a teacher, a tutor, whoever, but that it's a community effort and that we can't leave it up to someone else and that adults in a child's life, whether they're the parent, the caregiver, the teacher, um, all are role models. And it's that holistic approach and it's the consistency of how we interact with um, children that will help them develop these skills. Okay, great. And so let's address that. the last question we have for our panel, and that is, what's your favorite piece of advice or pieces of advice that you um, love to give? So some really nice takeaways for our audience. So we'll start with Rachel and go down the line again. How about it? <laughs> um, one of my favorite pieces of advice is to um, come up with your own advice, uh, to devise your own um uh, catchphrases or strategies that work with your child or the ch- child that you're working with. Um, so so often we're looking to um, quotes or, or gurus to find that sort of magic um, phrase that will resonate. And um, sometimes it's something that you could invent that might be very situation-specific. Um, and I'll give you an example of one of my favorite 
um, pieces of advice, uh, which came out of my time in running the PACT program. We were talking um, in one particular group with families about the importance of compromise and what that means. And there were some children in the group that were very young, and compromise is a very big word. Um, so we stopped to find out how they were understanding this concept. Uh, and I asked the group, can anybody tell me what compromise mean, means? And one young boy raised his hand, and he said, compromise is when red and blue make purple, <laughs> which has become <laughs> one of my favorite explanations for um, defining what is compromise, and I think it's a, a great definition. They both have to sort of surrender a little bit of themselves and become something uh, different. Um, but in your own lives, in your own work, in your own play, in your own uh, experiences, there's probably little anecdotes and things that you've heard, gems that um, sometimes comes out of the mouths of children mm -hmm. that uh, really best explain um, to your audience, and I think finding those little pieces and using them in your own life can be helpful. Okay, great. So Maya, what, what's your favorite advice to give about social-emotional learning and development? I think my favorite advice is that the little things really do matter. So this is a huge area, and there's so many skills and so much, so many repercussions, potential repercussions that fall under this, this heading, and it can seem kind of daunting. And so the best advice that I can give is that the little things matter and it's better to start small and to be open to making mistakes than to wait to do it perfectly or to not start at all. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> I like that. Margaret, how about you? What's your favorite advice? Well, uh, I appreciate the advice here um, from everybody else, and mine is sort of similar. I, I really think that um, embracing uh, opportunity, listening to really listening and stopping for a moment in your busy life to uh, listen to your child, observe them, and really not be afraid to engage and offer them those opportunities like within the family structure, daily activities, to feel um, like they're uh, successful, to give them opportunities to feel a part of that unit, and to contribute as well. Because again, those are the ways that um, you're going to build those relationships and really strengthen their um, understanding of who they are and where they fit in the world. Okay, great. All right, so that is pretty much that for our show. We're starting to close, and I, I wanted to thank all of our panelists, Dr. Margaret Carson. I'm sorry. I have neglected to wear my reading glasses, so <laughs> I'm having a challenge here, but Dr. Margaret Carlock Russo, Rachel Brandoff, and Maya Benatar for all their time and their expertise. I also wanted to thank the New York Center for Child Development and Hidden Chapel Studios for all their time and talent really bringing this to fruition for us. And just so the audience knows that you can always access um, the show anytime on the Blog Talk Radio website, and that's blogtalkradio.com slash kids A to Z. And what I also have on that website actually I have the the links to New York Center for Child Development. I have the link for Hidden Chapel Studios if you're interested to find out more about them. I also have the links and or the email contacts for our panelists if you're interested in reaching out to them. Um, and you can always reach out to Kids A to Z. You can send questions, comments. We'd love for you to make suggestions for show topics. 
and you can send emails. You can send that by email at info at kidsa-to-z.com. That's info at kidsa-to-z.com. We also have a Facebook page, so we encourage everyone to go there, too. And I'm also on Twitter, tweeting about lots of stuff that's related to this. And, um, and my Twitter handle is... Um, at Dr. Teresa. I think it's Teresa at Dr. Teresa or something like that. But you can find me and us if you Google us. And that is it. Thank you all for listening. We hope you all have a super day. Bye now.